Chapter 21 of Raiding with Morgan by Byron Dunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Escape The day was a long and weary one to Calhoun. Between the joy of knowing he was to be free and his misery over the thought that he must part with Joyce, his soul was alternately swept with conflicting emotions. Then he had seen so little of her during the day, she seemed more distant than she did before she declared her love. How he longed to take her in his arms, to have her head rest on his breast once more. But she had said that although it was the first, it was to be the last time. What did she mean? Ah, it must be that he could never embrace her again, never touch her lips again, until her father had consented to their marriage. When the war was over, he would wring that consent from him. The thought brought contentment. Yes, it was better that they should part. The news of the terrible battle of Chickamauga had just come, and it had fired his very soul. The South had won a great victory. Surely this was the beginning of the end. Independence was near. The war would soon be at an end, and he longed to be in at the finish. The excitement of war was once more running riot through his veins. He little thought of the sacrifice Joyce was making, of the fierce conflicts she was having with her conscience. She knew that she was doing wrong, that she was proving a traitor to the flag she loved, that she was aiding and abetting the enemy. But it was one, only one man, and she loved him so. Surely this one man, sick and wounded, could do no harm. It was cruel to shut him up in prison. Thus she reasoned to silence conscience. But if her reasons had been ten times as weak, love would have won. All through the day she was making preparations for Calhoun's departure. Fortunately, the young man who had been engaged to nurse Calhoun during the night had been taken sick a couple of days before, and as Calhoun rested well, another had not been engaged. Thus, one of the greatest obstacles to carrying out Joyce's plans was out of the way. She could easily manage Miss Goodson. Joyce's only confidant was the faithful Abe, who obeyed her without question. In his eyes, Missy Joyce could do nothing wrong. He had been drilled by Joyce until he knew just what to do. He was to go home, but as soon as it was dark, he was to return, being careful not to be seen. After he was sure the household was asleep, he was to harness a span of horses, being careful to make no noise, and have a carriage waiting in a grove a short distance back of the house. Here he was to wait for further orders from Joyce. Being well acquainted with the place, and Joyce promising to see that the barn and the carriage house were left unlocked, he would have no trouble in carrying out his instructions. Night came, and Joyce was in a fever of excitement. Would anything happen to prevent her carrying out her plans? If she had known that Andrew Harmon had hired a spy to watch the house, she would have been in despair. But the spy was to watch the window of Calhoun's room, and was concealed in a cornfield opposite the house. If he had watched the back instead of the front of the house, he would have seen some strange doings. Margaret Goodson was told that Calhoun was so well she could lie down in an adjoining room. If he needed anything, he could ring a little bell which stood on a table by his side. 
The nurse gladly availed herself of the opportunity to sleep. When the nurse retired, Joyce came into the room, and speaking so that she could hear her, said, "'Good night, Lieutenant Pennington. I hope you will rest well.' Then she whispered, "'Here is the Federal uniform. Have you strength to put it on?' "'Yes, but, oh, Joyce!' She made a swift gesture and pointed to the door of the nurse's room. "'Here is some money,' she continued in the same low whisper. "'Now don't refuse it. You will need it.' "'I had plenty of money in the belt around me when I was wounded,' whispered Calhoun. "'The belt. Oh, I forgot. The doctor gave it to me for safekeeping.' Noiselessly, she moved to the bureau, opened a drawer, and returned with the belt. "'Joyce, I shall not need your money now, but I thank you for the offer.' "'It is nothing. Be sure and be ready.' and she glided from the room. The minutes were like hours to Calhoun. At one time he had made up his mind not to accept his proffered liberty, as it might bring serious trouble on Joyce, but he concluded that he must accept. As for Joyce, she went to her room and threw herself down on a lounge. Her heart was beating tumultuously. Every little noise startled her like the report of a gun. She waited in fear and apprehension. At length, the clock struck eleven. They must all be asleep by this time, she thought. She arose and softly went downstairs, carrying blankets and pillows. She stopped and listened as she stepped out of doors. There was no moon. It was slightly cloudy, and darkness was over everything. Without hesitating, she made her way through the backyard and the barn lot to the grove where she had told Abe to be in waiting. She found that the faithful fellow had everything in readiness. Abe, I want you to come with me now and get the sick soldier. Drive through the lane until you reach the road, then drive straight to your house. The road is not much frequented, and you will not be apt to meet anyone at this time of night. If you do, say nothing. Leave the soldier when you get home. Drive straight back the way you came, Turn the horses into the pasture. Put the harness and carriage where you found them. Be careful and make no noise. When you have done this, go home again and be sure you get there before daylight. It's a hard night's work I have put on you, Abe, but I will pay you well for it. Now take off your boots and come with me. The obedient fellow did as he was bid and followed Joyce into the house and to Calhoun's room. Take him to the carriage whispered Joyce. The stalwart Abe took Calhoun in his arms as if he had been a child and carried him to the carriage. Now, Abe, remember and do just as I told you, said Joyce. Yes, Missy, I remember everything. She went to the side of the carriage, arranged the pillows and comforts around Calhoun, and then gave him her hand. Goodbye, she whispered. May God keep you safe. The hand was cold as death, and Calhoun felt she was trembling violently. "'Joyce, Joyce, is this to be our leave-taking?' "'Yes,' she whispered. "'Are you not coming to see me where I'm going?' "'No, I dare not. We must not see each other again until, until the war is over.' "'Without a kiss? Joyce, Joyce, I—' "'Hush, you have no right to ask for one. I, much less right to give it. Come when the war is over, and then—' Her voice broke, and she turned and fled into the darkness. 
How Joyce got back into the house, she never knew. She fell on her bed, half unconscious. The strain upon her had been terrible, and the effect might have been serious if tears had not come to her relief. After a violent paroxysm of sobbing, she grew calmer, and tired nature asserted itself, and she fell asleep. It was yet early morning when she was aroused by a cry from Miss Goodson, and that lady came rushing into her room, wringing her hands and crying, "'He is gone! He is gone!' "'Who is gone?' asked Joyce, springing up as if in amazement. Miss Goodson, in her excitement, did not notice that Joyce was fully dressed. "'The wounded rebel, Lieutenant Pennington,' she fairly shrieked. "'Oh, what shall I do? What shall I do?' And she wrung her hands in her distress. Joyce ran to Calhoun's room. Sure enough, it was empty. "'Stop your noise,' she said sharply to Miss Goodson. "'If anyone is to blame, I am. They will do nothing with you. It may be he became delirious during the night and has wandered off. We must have the house and premises searched.' The noise had aroused the whole household. The utmost excitement prevailed. Miss Crawford was frantic. She was sure they would all be sent to prison, and she unbraided Joyce for not getting another male nurse to watch him during the night. The house and the premises were thoroughly searched, but nothing was found of the missing man. The neighborhood was aroused, and a thorough search of the surrounding country began. Joyce took to her room with a raging headache. The afternoon brought a couple of deputy marshals from Columbus. They had come to convey Calhoun to prison, and were astonished when told that the prisoner had escaped. Miss Goodson was closely questioned. She had looked in once during the night. The lieutenant was awake, but said he was comfortable and wanted nothing. She then went to sleep and did not awake until morning. She found Joyce in her room, who was overcome when told that her patient was gone. She had not heard the slightest sound during the night. Dr. Hopkins was summoned. The old doctor was thunderstruck when he heard the news. He could scarcely believe it. To add to the mystery, Calhoun's Confederate uniform was found. Apparently, he had gone away with only his nightclothes on. Dr. Hopkins at once gave it as his opinion that Calhoun had been seized with a sudden delirium and had stolen out of the house and wandered away. No doubt the body would be found somewhere. His professional services were needed in the care of Joyce, for she seemed to be completely prostrated and had a high fever. Poor girl, said the doctor, the excitement has been too much for her. If he suspected anything, he kept his secret well. The spy employed by Andrew Harmon reported that he had not seen or heard anything suspicious during the night, so that gentleman concluded to say nothing, as he did not wish it to be known that he had had the house secretly watched. Mr. Crawford returned the day after the escape. He was greatly exercised over what had happened and blamed everyone that Calhoun had been kept so long as he had. Poor Joyce came in for her share, but she wisely held her peace. The country was scoured for miles around, but nothing was seen or heard of the escaped prisoner. At last, the excitement died out. Joyce did not lack news from Calhoun. The faithful Abe kept her fully informed. Joyce told him that both of them would go to prison if it was known what they had done, and he kept the secret well. 
He reported that Calhoun was gaining rapidly and would soon be able to go his way. He wants to see you awfully bad before he goes, said Abe. But Joyce resolutely refused. It would not do either of them any good. One day the Negro brought her a letter. It was from Calhoun, telling her that when she received it he would be gone. He thought it cruel that she had not come to see him just once. He closed as follows. Joyce, I feel that my life is yours, for you saved it. Not only that, but to you I now owe my liberty, and I realize the struggle you have had to do as you have done. But be of good cheer. When the war is over, the thunder of the last cannon will have hardly died away before I shall be at your side. Till then, adieu. The letter was very precious to Joyce. Before the war was over, it was nearly worn out by being read and reread. Shortly after Mr. Crawford's return, he was asked by Andrew Harmon for permission to pay his addresses to his daughter. Harmon hoped that if he had her father's permission to pay his addresses to her, Joyce's coldness might disappear. Mr. Crawford did not like the man, but he was rich and had a certain amount of political influence. Mr. Crawford was thinking of being a candidate for Congress at the approaching election, and he did not wish to offend Harmon, but he secretly hoped that Joyce would refuse him. In this, he was not disappointed. She was indignant that her father had listened to Harmon, even to the extent that he had. "'Why, father, I have heard you call him cowardly and dishonest,' she exclaimed, "'and to think that you told him you would leave it entirely to me.' I did not wish to offend him, meekly replied Mr. Crawford, and I had confidence in your judgment. I was almost certain you would refuse him. Will you always have such confidence in my judgment, asked Joyce quickly? What do you mean? asked her father. Suppose I should wish to marry one of whom you did not approve. That is another proposition, said Mr. Crawford. You might have been so foolish as to fall in love with that Morgan rebel, and horse-thief you took care of so long. If so, I'd rather see you dead than married to him. Poor Joyce! Did her father suspect anything? She caught her breath and came near falling. Quickly recovering herself, she answered, At least he was a brave man. But everybody says he is dead, and mortals do not wed ghosts. It is to be sincerely hoped he is dead, replied Mr. Crawford, for... He had noticed his daughter's confusion, and an uneasiness took possession of him. But much to Joyce's relief, he did not question her further. Andrew Harmon was beside himself with rage, when told by Mr. Crawford that while his daughter was sensible of the great honor he would bestow upon her, she was still very young, and had no idea of marrying anyone at present. Harmon determined to have revenge on Joyce, and began slyly to circulate reports that Joyce Crawford, if she chose, could tell a great deal about the escape of the rebel officer. In fact, half of his sickness was shammed. The rumors came to the ears of Mark Crawford. He had been promoted to a colonelcy for gallantry at Chickamauga. During the winter, while the army lay still around Chattanooga, he had come home on furlough. While at home, he sought out Harmon and gave him as fine a thrashing as a man ever received, warning him 
that if he ever heard of him connecting his sister with the escape of Calhoun again, he would break every bone in his body. The only revenge Harmon durst take was to defeat Mr. Crawford in his aspirations for the nomination for Congress. End of chapter 21